Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The top story of the week is obviously the spread of COVID-19, the coronavirus, and you're hearing stories all over the place about bans on large public gatherings, school closings, major sports leagues all over the place are suspending operations for now. President Trump even banned travel from Europe for 30 days. The goal of all of this is to flatten the curve, which is to say, slow the spread of COVID-19 to allow local healthcare systems to effectively treat those that are sick. For more on why canceling all these events makes sense, we spoke to Reed Wilson. He's a correspondent for The Hill. So I want you to envision a graph with two bells on it. And one bell is really steep. It starts really going vertically really fast, and then it comes down pretty fast. That's what happens if we don't do anything in the face of a viral outbreak. A lot of people get the disease really fast. Now, in the second instance, the bell is low and sloped. So it's got a gentle curve up and then a gentle curve down, which means probably the same number of people get the virus, but over a much longer period of time. Somewhere on this graph, on the vertical axis, is a line that goes across the chart. And that line is the hospital capacity that we have. So if we've got 100 beds and a population of 200 people, if all those 200 people get sick at the same time, well, 100 people get beds and 100 people are out of luck. And those people have a much, much higher risk of dying or having some horrible health outcome than the people who get hospital beds. If those same 200 people all get sick, but over a very long period of time, it gives the first 100 people the chance to heal and get better and be discharged from the hospital in time for the second 100 people to get the beds and get the same treatment. And that's what we've seen in countries that have worked really fast to bend this viral curve and to make sure that they have the hospital capacity to take care of so many people. Places like South Korea, where what we know so far is that the COVID the mortality rate is somewhere between half and eight tenths of a percent. So five to eight times worse than the common flu, but not hugely disastrous. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, in a place like Italy, you see a huge number of people getting the disease and the hospital system being overwhelmed on the front end. And that means there are a whole bunch of people who aren't getting treated right now. And that's when the mortality rate goes to three, four, five percent. And you start talking about a really cataclysmic outcome. That's what's called flattening the curve. You might have heard that term thrown around a lot. And that's what it is. It's just spreading it out so that local health agencies have the opportunity to treat it better. The president in address the other night just said that he's banning travel from Europe for 30 days. And that begins Friday at midnight. A lot of people walked away from the president's speech, not necessarily feeling any more confident about the big situation here in the United States. But these measures are things that need to be practiced. Travel bans, they have a limited benefit here. And we've seen, we saw that in the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. The president slapped a travel ban on China. And sure enough, COVID-19 came to the United States, not in somebody who is Chinese, but an American who was visiting Wuhan and came home. So the president's travel ban on Europe still allows Americans to travel home from any place in Europe. It just doesn't allow European citizens. Well, American citizens aren't any less vulnerable to a virus than European citizens are. So we live in this globalized world, right? We're not going to stop travel 
And even if we do stop travel, we're not going to be able to stop a disease that can still get here in any number of ways. So the thing that concerns me about this virus is not it coming in from overseas, from China, from Europe, from Iran, from South Korea. It's the community spread that is happening right here, right now. And how has the U.S. response been so far? Because there's been a lot been made about testing and all that. But some people are saying the window is closing for a widespread outbreak to happen in the United States, something similar to like in Italy or something like that. Obviously, the numbers are still relatively low compared to that. But how is our window with regards to that? It's not looking good. I mean, the number of cases are charting almost exactly where Italy was about 10 days ago. We're effectively 10 days behind Italy right now. And if we don't start taking some pretty drastic actions, we face the same threat that they do. I'm not saying this in a partisan way, but having evaluated the American response to the Ebola outbreak and now watching this one, the level of Sheer incompetence at the federal governmental level is staggering. I was watching today as Congress was debating whether or not to pass some kind of legislative action to combat the coronavirus or at least provide a ton of funding for it or go on recess. And there were some senators who were suggesting, well, we'll just go on recess and come back the week after next to solve this thing. It's like, guys, the time is now. Like I I was starting to physically see red. I was getting so angry at the lack of action and response that we've seen from Congress. It is mind-boggling how far behind this curve we are. We've seen some good actions from some governors, governor of Washington, governor of Ohio, the governor of New York and California have all started banning big events and mass gatherings. That's excellent. We need to do more of that and we need to do less of the sort of partisan bickering that we see in Congress. And I'm not sure that these guys realize how incredibly crucial it is to do this, not like now, but like two weeks ago. I think that was the $8 billion package that you were talking about. I think Congress did say they are suspending recess so they can continue working on that. But a lot of people said we need more than even those $8 billion to address the situation here in the United States. So the other big thing, you mentioned all the governors kind of canceling large events and how everybody needs to practice a lot of social distancing, things like that. I just have to mention it because a couple of days ago when we were getting all the news and everything, and then Tom Hanks announces that he has coronavirus, he and his wife, Tom Hanks great actor, all that beloved person in the country. It just takes like those moments to really click for a lot of people, I think. And these closures, there's a lot of hysteria going on, but these are very sensible things actually that we have to do to help limit the spread of this. We need to recognize our own individual role in this. I mean, it's our job to wash our hands constantly. It's our job to stay home if we're sick. It's our job to make preparations so that, you know, if we do have to quarantine for two weeks, we can live in our houses and make sure that we've got enough medicine and things like that. But when you mentioned Tom Hanks, a New York Times reporter who's an expert on epidemics, brought up something this morning that I thought was really appropriate. He talked about the Rock Hudson moment. And if you remember your history, I'm not quite old enough for this, but I've read about this in the past. Back in the early 80s, Rock Hudson was the like leading man of the 50s and 60s and showed up on screen with Doris Day. Well, back in the 80s, he got sick and people didn't really know what he had. He might have had cancer of some kind or whatever. But then all of a sudden, when he goes to France to get treated and he ends up dying of this thing called AIDS, It was the first time that Americans had really heard and understood what AIDS was. And five days later, after his death, Congress passed the first big funding bill to fund research into AIDS. So maybe Tom Hanks getting sick with fortunately something that's a lot less deadly than AIDS. Maybe that was the Rock Hudson moment where we all wake up and say, oh, my God, this is something we need to really, truly prepare for. There's no reason to panic, but there is reason to prepare and get ready. And I think that's what we can take away from what was an incredible Wednesday night of 
Hanks getting sick, of the president's address, of the NBA canceling its season, and then the Dow falling off a cliff the next day. I mean, if people needed any excuse to wake up, they've got it by now. Reed Wilson, correspondent at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Also this week, the World Health Organization had declared the COVID-19 crisis a global pandemic, with Iran and Italy as the new front lines in the battle against the virus. Italy has now over 15,000 confirmed cases and over 1,000 deceased. The jump just happened. And it led the government there to put the entire country on lockdown, limiting the movement of 60 million people. For more on what Italy is like post-lockdown, we spoke to Chico Harlan. He's the Rome Bureau Chief at the Washington Post. Well, totally surreal. When you're on the streets now in Rome, you don't really see people. Some, but they now abide by these completely once alien customs, keeping their distance from one another, eyeing others suspiciously. Some are wearing masks, some aren't. Some wrap scarves around their mouths. But I was only briefly out today shopping for groceries and the line forms with everyone keeping a meter or two distance from one another. And, you know, the minute you get home, you wash your hands for somewhere between 20 to 40 seconds and you try not to touch your face. These are the things that every Italian is doing now. And of course, normal life has stopped. School, theater, museums, nothing is open. There's very little reason to go outside other than just to see the beauty of Rome, which still is there. You can't ever shut that down. But these are customs that Italians have eternalized, I'd say, very quickly in just a matter of days as the number of cases has gone up and up and up. And I kind of as society in a very rapid amount of time went through all the stages of grief and acceptance that allowed these measures to be taken without much blowback at all. Now people are saying, okay, it's necessary. And I think other countries will get there too, maybe not to a lockdown, but to some dramatic ways in which life changes. Right. The numbers are constantly changing, but we have over 12,000 confirmed cases there in Italy, more than 800 deaths. The numbers just keep rising all the time. What does the official lockdown consist of? I know they're placing restrictions on travel in and out of the country and all, but what else are the restrictions, the official restrictions that are happening there? You're not supposed to move outside of the country or from one area to the other within the country unless you have special permission So for reasons of work that are urgent, necessary, for reasons of health or other emergencies, and you need to have this police form, a signed declaration with you, and and you're liable to be checked. And I do think enforcement, though it's impossible to patrol every single border, it's been enough to reduce dramatically the number of people that are even leaving their neighborhood. And I think that's the goal. It's kind of to atomize society and turn 60 million people into a nation of home dwellers. And it takes society to get pretty spooked before people will do that. I mean, really, though it's a government order, it's also a matter of self-compliance. And I think pretty much down to the person, that's what's happening now. The last two or three days, Italy has felt shut down indeed. In the United States, Washington State's governor just announced a ban on gatherings of more than 250 people, concerts and music festivals. Things are being shut down. So in the United States, we're kind of getting there. We're getting to that point where they're starting to shut down things. And obviously, they're telling people not to be in large gatherings. But for a city like Rome and the country overall in Italy, there's tons of tourism there. People go there to be out and about and experience the culture And that's rapidly changing, as you've been saying. What happens to the business owners? Because if everything's shut down, there's very limited people in a cafe or so. And even then, they're still sitting a meter apart or something. What of the business owners there? 
they're totally screwed. Surely there'll be some government attempts at relief and bailout, but Italy will be in a deep recession. And Italy was in a bad economic shape even before this hit, but it could be one of the ugliest chapters of post-war Italian history just from an economic standpoint. And it, of course, there are variables about how long this carries on for, but this is a country that depends on tourism for 13% of its GDP. Tourism is zero now. Nobody is here. Right. And then, of course, shops are closed at night. There's not a restaurant open in Italy tonight. That was one of the interesting things I noted from your piece is that they said that restaurants and bars should be closing by 6 p.m. And for anybody that's been to Italy or knows about it, they eat pretty late. They don't really start getting out until 9 o'clock or something. No one's one's going to dinner now. That's basically what it means. You can go out for lunch. And there's some talk even that restrictions might further tighten such that the only things that are open are pharmacies and grocery stores. That remains to be seen. But some politicians from the north are saying that even the existing restrictions are too lax. This is pretty far gone, obviously, there in Italy. But do we know where the first case started, how it really originated there? Was it somebody traveling back from China? They still don't have a definitive answer, but it looks more complicated than that. There's some speculation that it could have come from Germany. There was a miniature outbreak in January. Then maybe there was some contact there. But by and large, the hunt for patient zero has been unfulfilling and almost at this point feels besides the point. Because by the time Italy woke up to this, it had clearly been brewing for about three weeks, maybe, well, let's just say some weeks. And then they started looking for cases and they found cases everywhere. So that didn't happen overnight. And that's exactly why the World Health Organization has declared this a pandemic now so that countries and everybody can put a lot of effort into this, into getting their health systems up to date and ready in case something happens, in case outbreaks happen there locally. For now, thank you, Chico. I appreciate you giving us the lowdown there and what's going on. As I said, some of these restrictions and things are probably going to start popping up in a lot of different places as people are trying to limit the spread of this. But for now, Italy completely on lockdown. Chico, thank you very much. Rome Bureau Chief at The Washington Post. Thank you. And while coronavirus continues to dominate the news cycle, we did have another round of voting for the Democratic nomination for president, and Joe Biden continued to extend his lead in the delegate count. But you can't count out Bernie Sanders just yet. Despite for calls for him to get out of the race, Sanders has said he will continue his campaign and participate in a one-on-one debate with Joe Biden on Sunday. For more on this story, we spoke to David Siders. He's the national political correspondent at Politico. I think that in every way except for mathematically, Biden is going to be the nominee. And barring some unforeseen event, which could happen, something could happen at the debate, things happen in campaigns. But as it stands right now, the road for Bernie Sanders is almost impossible. It wasn't just that he lost yesterday. He lost in Michigan, which was key to his whole electability argument with white working class voters. Washington, where he won by more than 40 percentage points in 2016. That race was neck and neck. So it was just a disaster for him with even harsher primaries looming. The Florida election next week is not going to be kind to Bernie Sanders. Georgia the week after that, same thing. So I think what we saw last night was a reset to almost what we had in 2016, where Bernie Sanders is now, for the most part, a movement candidate. And Biden is the moderate who is on the cusp of being the presumptive nominee. And that's why the debate, I think, is important to Sanders. You know, electorally, it may matter if Biden 
embarrasses himself at the debate or you know, something significant like that happens, more likely it's an opportunity for Sanders to air the movement concerns that he wants to air. So the debate is going to be very important for Joe Biden. His debate performances across this whole process have been a little uneven, let's say. There's times where he's done really well. There's times where he's kind of not really been present or something. So this will be important for Bernie Sanders, who is very consistent on the debate stage, at least. But even in his remarks in front of his home, you know, he said, let me be very frank as to all the questions I'm going to be asking Joe. You know, he threw out things, uh, you know, he's going to ask him about climate change, college affordability, criminal justice, all the things that Bernie Sanders constantly talks about. So it's going to be interesting to see how he attacks him in that way. And from what I've been reading, a lot of people are saying it's got to be somewhat delicate. You know, if he bruises Joe Biden so badly, that's just going to make him look worse in a general election if that is what eventually happens. I'd expect a tough debate by Bernie. That's been a hallmark. I think he's pretty good at it. This is his first chance to have a head-to-head with Biden. And like you said, Biden has not always been great. But there's two things, I think, to keep in mind. One is that Biden has been better the last week or so. Coming from a position of strength, I think, suits him. And Sanders will be coming to the debate from a position of weakness. And the other thing to watch, I think, in Sanders' remarks at the press conference in Burlington, What you saw there was a discussion about ideas, but I think significant to where we are in the race, he was not tearing down Joe Biden. You didn't see a nasty attack on Biden. In fact, he gave a pretty frank assessment of where the campaign is electorally, you know, acknowledging that he's behind. And I think that if you're one of these people who is looking for unity going ahead to November, seeing Joe Biden on Tuesday night, reaching out directly to Sanders supporters, and then seeing Sanders the next day not undercutting Biden as a person. That was pretty significant. And I think if Sanders has his way, this will be a fierce, robust kind of debate on Sunday, but it'll be one about ideas. Bernie Sanders has always been about revolution and the movement and young voters. And he even said that in his statements saying, I have the support of younger voters. Joe Biden doesn't necessarily have that support there. But it hasn't been showing up so much in these primaries that we've been having. The younger voters aren't really turning out that much for Bernie Sanders. What's the problem there? Bernie Sanders, he said in the press conference, he said, we have young voters. The electorate even more broadly likes the ideology, a lot of the progressive agenda that he's advancing. They just haven't been turning out for him. And I think what this comes down to is that this election did not turn out to be about ideology. It turned out to be about the messenger. And the message from the primary so far is that, first of all, in South Carolina, African-American voters preferred Biden. And then once it got past South Carolina, the broader electorate did. Young voters were not as energized as Bernie needed them to be. And everybody else went for Biden. Well, Sunday is going to be a big day for this debate. It's going to be a little interesting. There will be no audience members because of the outbreak of coronavirus. So out of an abundance of caution, they're not going to have audience members there. And, you know, a lot of exit polls had said that people do trust the former vice president the most in a time of crisis. So it'll be interesting to see what's going to happen at that debate and beyond to see if Bernie continues in the race. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.